Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. When Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount, we move from a time of extended teaching to a time of extended action. But the effect on the people is the same, and for the same reason. The people are blown away because of the authority with which Jesus spoke and acted. When the scribes taught, they cited previous scribal rulings and the traditions of the elders. When the Old Testament prophets taught, and even when Moses himself taught, they said, Thus says the Lord. But when Jesus taught, he said, I say to you. And he acted with the same authority, an authority greater than the scribes, greater than the prophets, greater even than Moses. Indeed, the only one who spoke and acted with the authority Jesus did was God himself. And that is precisely Matthew's point. Jesus is not only the new Moses. He is Emmanuel, God in the flesh, the living word, the capstone of all prophecy, the perfection of all revelation, and the deliverer of mankind and the world. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Thanks for listening. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 7. We'll pick up the very end of the chapter, verse 28 and 29. But we're going to read all the way down through Matthew chapter 8, verse 22. So Matthew 7, 28 through 8, 22. This is God's word to us and to the world for all time. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded, as a testimony to them. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. 
So he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served them. When the evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for this treasury of this word you've given to us. We know from your word you intend for this to encourage us and to build us up, to give us hope, to make us strong, to equip us in every way to be whole and to be your children who are serving you, being your light to the world, uh, loving one another, building up one another in Christ until we come to the maturity, the fullness of Christ and all the fullness of God in us. Lord, all of these wonderful things we know you intend to bring about by the ministry of your Holy Spirit through your word. And so we ask that you would do that this very day in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount for quite a while. And now we're moving from a time of extended teaching, which was in Matthew's chapters 5 through 7, to a time of extended action in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. But the effect on the people is the same and for the same reason. The effect of Jesus' teaching was that the people were astonished, it says in verse 28. Now, astonished really doesn't capture the Greek. The people were knocked off their feet. The Greek word actually means to be struck, and to be struck so hard that, that that it pushes you, that it knocks you away, it knocks you out of a room or something like that. And so it's really a kind of a violent word. And so the, the, the idea here is that the people were knocked off their feet. Um, uh, they were blown over. They were blown away. That is the idea. So when they heard his teaching, they were blown away. And that is the same result we will see from Jesus' actions. When the multitude saw, they marveled. You find that in verse nine, uh, chapter 9 and verse 8. When they see all the things that Jesus is doing, they marvel. They are awestruck. Now, in both cases, the thing that really blows the people away out of all the different things, I mean, Jesus' amazing teaching, all the amazing insight, the amazing truth, all the things that would have been amazing about his sermon, the thing that really blew the people away was the authority with which Jesus spoke. And it will be the same thing out of all the amazing things about the miracles and the signs and wonders that he's doing. The thing that's going to strike them and blow them away is the authority with which he acts. Now, authority here doesn't mean theoretical power. That's often the way we think of it as kind of a static power, a theoretical power. Authority here means the actual power, the power to act the power to decide, the power to speak and to accomplish. And it's not a derivative power like all other human uh, authority is, which is derived for the most part from other human authorities. Here Jesus is acting from an authority that he himself has been given 
from the Father in heaven. So when Jesus teaches the people, he does not do like the scribes. Now, the scribes actually did have authority. Jesus referenced elsewhere that the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. In other words, they are the official interpreters and teachers of the law of Moses and had been for a long time. And so they actually had authority. And yet they did not teach with the kind of authority that Jesus did. They would teach by citing previous scribal rulings, citing previous traditions of the elders, and so forth, much like our courts today cite previous uh, court decisions to justify their current decisions. Jesus, when he taught, did not even do like the prophets of the Old Testament and say, thus says the Lord. Jesus taught by saying, I say to you, I say to you. Not even Moses, the lone prophet of the Old Testament, to whom God spoke face to face as to a friend. Not even Moses taught with that kind of authority. Even Moses said, thus says the Lord. But Jesus says, I say to you. So Jesus is even greater than Moses. And that is exactly the point that that Matthew is making. Moses prophesied that God one day would raise up a prophet like him, the prophet to whom God spoke face to face as to a friend. But none had arisen in the Old Testament. But now that prophet has come, and his name is Jesus. That's one of the main points that Peter makes in his great sermon on the day of Pentecost, is that Jesus is the prophet that Moses spoke about who would come. And he's not just like Moses, he is even greater than Moses because he teaches with even greater authority than Moses. Now the reason, as the Apostle John tells us, is that Jesus is the Word of God incarnate. He is God the Son in human flesh. As Jesus would tell the the scribes and Pharisees in John chapter 8, He is the I Am who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. The God who said, I am to Moses. I am that I am. Jesus says that he was the one who appeared to Abraham and made the promises to him. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that Jesus is the one who appeared to Moses on the mountain and gave him the law. Now, it doesn't mean Jesus the man because Jesus wasn't a man at that point. But what it means is God the Son, God the Word, The second person of the Holy Trinity is the one who appeared to Abraham and made the promises to him, is the one who led him, the one who led Isaac and Jacob. He's the one who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. He's the one who gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And now that one has become flesh. He has become fully a man, and his name is Jesus. So Jesus doesn't teach by saying, thus says the Lord, because he is the Lord. That was one of the great Old Testament prophecies that one day the Lord himself will come to his temple. He will come to his people and Jesus is that one. So the people are blown away with the authority with which Jesus teaches. And then the people are blown away by Jesus' actions, his signs and wonders, and the reason is the same. The authority by which he acts. 
God did a lot of signs and wonders in the Old Testament. He acted through a lot of different prophets, but not the way that Jesus acted. Jesus doesn't exercise demons the way that the professional exorcists did back in that day, who had elaborate and protracted ceremonies in order to try to exercise demons uh, from people who were possessed. It says in verse 16 of chapter 8, Jesus cast them out with a word. He speaks a word, and it is done. And that is what was blowing the people away. Jesus would heal. He healed many people. Sometimes he touches the person, but he doesn't need to. Sometimes he speaks to the person, but he doesn't need to. He doesn't even have to be present. He can just say the word like he does with a centurion servant. Never meets the person, never sees the person, never touches the person. He says a word, and this servant is healed from this paralysis. Now Moses performed the signs and wonders that delivered the people from Egypt, and that set Moses apart from all the different prophets in the Old Testament who did signs and wonders. If you read the stories of Elijah and Elisha, you see the amazing miracles that God did through them. But nobody did the same kind of signs and wonders Moses did that were the ones that broke the power of Pharaoh in Egypt and brought the people of God out. But Jesus acts with even greater authority than Moses. Moses always said, thus says the Lord, and then he would perform the actions that God had told him to perform. Jesus just speaks a word, and the signs and wonders occur. In other words, Jesus is the Lord who spoke to Moses. He is the one who told Moses what to say. He is the one who told Moses what to do. Now that Lord, God, is incarnate in Jesus and has come among his people to deliver them finally and completely. So Jesus is the greater Moses who was promised, and that Moses is the Lord himself, and that is exactly uh, Matthew's point. So there's this prophecy of the prophet coming who was like Moses. But when this one comes, and it turns out to be God himself in the flesh, we go from saying what was said all during the Old Testament period when a great prophet or when a great king or a great leader or deliverer would arise, they would always say, he's kind of like Moses. Moses was the prototypical savior. He was the prototypical deliverer. He was the picture. So David is kind of like Moses. Elijah is kind of like Moses. But when we get to Jesus, we say, Moses is kind of like Jesus. Because we see he is the reality and the fullness. So we see here in our text Jesus moving rapidly and performing mighty acts. He comes down from the mountain and is met by a leper whom he heals. Then he goes to Capernaum and is met by the centurion. And Jesus heals his servant with a word. Then Jesus goes to Peter's house where he finds Peter's mother-in-law sick with a fever and heals her. Then in the evening, the people bring many who are sick or demon-possessed, and Jesus heals them all and casts out the demons with a word. Then, next week, we're going to see that Jesus heads across the Sea of Galilee into Gentile lands where he casts out demons. And then he's going to go to Nazareth where he will heal a paralyzed man. And so there is this torrent pace of Jesus moving here and moving there and casting out demons and healings right and left. It's a dizzying uh, speed and power display. 
The picture we really get here is that of a field general, a commander in the field, moving rapidly here and there to engage and to defeat the enemy. And that, I believe, explains Jesus' two strange replies to those who were seeking to join the small inner circle of disciples who were following Jesus about. You had a bigger company of disciples who were believing in Jesus, but you had a very small band of disciples who were actually traveling with him everywhere he goes. And near the end of our text, we have a, a scribe who says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. That's somebody saying, I want to be in your company that is actually with you going wherever you do. And then it says another of his disciples, again, part of the broader company, is saying, um, let me go bury my father. In other words, I want to be part of this small band that is going with you everywhere you go, but I have to go bury my father. He's probably a firstborn because in the Jewish traditions, the obligations of a firstborn upon the death of the father were very sacred obligations, not only to bury the father, but to go through certain rituals and uh, ceremonies that uh, honored the father and so forth. And these were considered very, very sacred duties that a firstborn would bear. So this is probably a firstborn saying, I want to be part of this small company of disciples who's going with you everywhere you go, but I have to go bury my father. And then we have these strange responses. To the, to the first, Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, and to the other who needs to perform these duties of the eldest son, Jesus says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, I think we need to see that these are placed in the context of Jesus as this commander in the field. Jesus isn't saying that he's a poor outcast on the street. He's saying that he's a fearless commander in the field. He isn't seeking sympathy. He's seeking soldiers. But soldiers have to understand that they are not enlisting in peacetime. This is wartime. And demands that seem harsh and unreasonable in peacetime are reasonable and necessary in wartime. Wartime, in other words, is no time for the normal rhythms and routines of life. And anyone wanting to be in the band that is following Jesus around needs to know what they're signing up for. They are enlisting in a lightning warfare unit. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is telling them. He is a commander in the field. He is at war. He is engaging the enemy. And if they want to be with him, they have to understand that. Now, I, this is all buttressed by the centurion's response to Jesus. When he says to him, he says, I too am a man under authority. And I have others under me. In other words, he starts talking in military language. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and this one, come, and he comes. He starts talking to Jesus that the, his faith in Jesus has all of this uh, military uh, um, way of understanding it. And I think that's because this military man knows a military commander when he sees one. He knows a commander in the field when he sees it. He knows a field general at war when he sees one. And with the eyes of faith, he sees this general in the field who speaks a word and all jump, all obey. And that is the faith that Jesus commended. That is the faith 
that will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God, which is why Jesus brings that up. Many will come from north and south and east and west and sit down, in other words, Gentiles, and they will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Why is this the faith? This faith is the, is the essential characteristic of all those who will sit down in the kingdom. The reason why they're going to sit down with Abraham at table is because this is the faith of Abraham. Just like Moses was the prototypical deliverer, the Bible tells us that Abraham is the prototypical believer. If you're not of the faith of Abraham, you're not saved. If you're not of the faith of Abraham, you're not united to Christ, and you're not in him. This is the faith of Abraham, and the touchstone of the covenant was always the faith of Abraham. Throughout the Old Covenant, those who do not have the faith of Abraham, trusting in God's promises, are cut out of the covenant. So when God sends the deliverer of Moses, for example, those who are offended, those who do not trust in God's word through Moses, who do not follow Moses as a type of Christ, are cut out of the people. Those who do follow Moses, even if they're Egyptian, end up being incorporated into God's people. So faith, the faith of Abraham in the gospel promises concerning Jesus Christ have always been the touchstone of the covenant of God. Now Jesus performs many signs and wonders as Matthew indicates. He says, They brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Chapter 8, verse 16. But Matthew then, so you've got lots of miracles going on, one after another, in every direction all the time. But Matthew picks ten, ten signs and wonders that Jesus performed, and he focuses in on those ten signs and wonders. We're looking at the first three today. So that's the leper, the centurion's servant who was paralyzed, and then Peter's mother-in-law who had the fever. And so Matthew relates these ten signs and wonders to us in triads plus one. In other words, groups of three, three, six, nine, and then the final one. So you've got three groups of three plus the one. Now the reason why that's significant is because that's the same way Exodus uh, focuses in on ten signs and wonders that Moses performed in Egypt, and that's the same way Exodus relates those ten to us. Three groups of three plus one. Now, God um, gave Moses three signs and wonders to prove he was sent by God as the deliverer. You remember when God called Moses, speaking to him from the burning bush, Moses kept saying, how do they know that, what if they don't believe me? How will they know that you sent me? And so forth. And God gave him three signs and wonders to perform to prove that he was God's deliverer uh, for Israel. The first one was turning his staff into a serpent and then back from a serpent into the staff. The second one was making his hand leprous and then healing it. And then the third one was turning water to blood. Now, So you're dealing with serpent, you're dealing with leprosy, and you're dealing with blood. And these three symbolize God's power over Satan, the serpent, his power over sin, as symbolized by leprosy, and his power over death, as symbolized by blood. 
And the ten plagues that are going to come on Egypt are going to fall into these three categories. So whenever Moses delivers the land from the plague, it demonstrates the power of God to deliver from Satan, sin, and death. And the ten miracles that Jesus, that Matthew focuses in on in, in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, likewise fall into these three categories. So think about that. Think about, think about the serpent uh, as Satan. Think about leprosy or disease, leprosy specifically, and sin. And think about blood and death. Okay. Now, it's interesting that the ten signs and wonders of Jesus that Matthew focuses in on are not necessarily the ones with the most wow factor. There is a lot more wow factor with Jesus healing multitudes, casting out multitudes of demons with a word, than there is, for example, in Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law, who had a fever. Now, if, if we were writing the script, if we were making a movie about this episode, the episode about Peter's mother-in-law and the fever would probably be on the cutting room floor because it doesn't have any wow factor compared to the other miracles. It's not one we'd put in there. But Matthew does put it in there. And so the ten that he picks aren't necessarily the ones with the most wow factor. And what that means is that the ten signs and wonders Matthew has selected they're for the purpose of making a point. It's not just, oh yeah, look at this. Well, look at this one. If you think that's something, look at this one. It's not the most wow factor. He's teaching us something. All of these teach us something important about Jesus, about ourselves, and about the human race. So what can we learn from the three first signs and wonders that Matthew focuses in on in our text? Well, first we see that sin is like a disease. It's like a disease that's in our blood, in our bone marrow, in our tissue. And that's why God often uses sickness, particularly something like leprosy that spreads and eats away at us, to teach us about sin. Now, it's significant under the Old Testament law that if it wasn't spreading, it wasn't considered leprosy. So if it's benign, if it's just sitting there, it's not considered leprosy. It had to be spreading and moving uh, to be considered leprosy. In other words, it had to be malignant. It's interesting that sickness, which came about as a result of the fall, is really a biological manifestation of death within us. I guess a way to look at it is that a sickness is death peeking out in a biological way. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that sin is the sting of death. Sin is the sting of death. In other words, think of it this way. Death is the poison. Sin is the stinger that injects the poison into us. Death is the poison and sin is the stinger that injects sin, that injects death into us. And one of the most powerful manifestations of death within us is that it makes us crave sin more. And then when we sin, we end up self-injecting ourselves even with more death. So like leprosy, death and sin spread and grow and they eat away at our lives. Like paralysis, sin and death keep us from doing what we ought, even when we want to do it. 
The centurion's servant is paralyzed and tormented. There are things he wants to do that he can't do. It's not just a matter of the fact that he can't do what he ought to do. He can't even do what he wants to do. And that's our situation, being under the power of sin and death. Not only can we not do that which we should do, we can't even do what we want to do. And that's something Paul talks about in Romans 7. He talks about uh, how he would often try to, to do good. And that, that many times, though, the more acquainted he became with the law of God, when it, said, it says, don't covet, for example. Be content, don't covet. Paul says, as soon as you say, don't covet to me, I start coveting even more. And that's the power of sin within us. And like a fever, sin and death affect our whole selves and keep us from feeling right, from thinking right, and from doing right. Have you ever had the flu when you had a, a really bad fever? Well, you know, even if you have a little fever, it really makes you feel bad. You're just, you're not yourself. You just, you know, it affects everything. There's not any part of you that's not affected. But when you have a really bad fever, it really affects the way you think. I remember J.I. Packer relating a, a, a situation when he was a little boy. He had to go in the hospital because he had uh, such a bad fever, and he became delirious in the hospital room. He thought he was somewhere else and so forth. And so what he's thinking and imagining has nothing to do with, with actual reality. And a high fever can do that to us. It keeps us from feeling the way we should. It keeps us from thinking the way we should and from doing the way we should. So Jesus is using these three, leprosy, paralysis, and fever, to give us pictures of how sin indwells in us and what it does to us. Now the second thing we see is that salvation is not just a matter of being forgiven. Salvation is also a matter of being made whole, of being made right, of being made healthy in heart and mind and soul. It's not just forgiveness we need. It's not just a matter of, you know, God's ticked off. You know you broke some rules and God's ticked off. Did you know that? Well, um, that's kind of a flippant way to say it. Uh, but, but that's true. But that's, that's not the whole point. We often see it that way, that there's these arbitrary rules that God's come up with because he's a big killjoy in the sky, and he's got all these rules that nobody in their right mind could even want to keep, let alone keep, and we accidentally did a few things we shouldn't have done, and he's a grumpy old fella, and now we've got to do something to appease his anger. That's a real caricature of the true situation. Salvation is much more than that. We need to be restored to health. We need to be restored to wholeness. And we need to be restored to a right relationship with God. So salvation means being made whole, being made healthy in heart, mind, and soul. And it also means being restored to a healthy, right relationship with God who made us for himself. We were made for a relationship with God. We were also made to relate to one another, but before that, we were made for a relationship with God. Now, lepers could not enter into formal worship of God in the Old Testament. Now, that was a picture. 
Oftentimes we see that kind of thing and people think that that is just a cruelty. No, it was a teaching device. It did not mean that lepers were beyond the reach of God's grace and God's love in the Old Testament. That's not what that meant. What it meant was when it came to formal temple worship, they could not engage in that formal worship. And it is a picture. It is a picture of all of us. For the human race is estranged from God, incapable of knowing Him, incapable of worshiping Him, and excluded from His presence and fellowship. And so that's what's being pictured by this leper. And so you notice this leper comes to Jesus worshiping Him. He comes to Jesus doing what he can't do in the formal pictures of the Old Testament. He comes to Him worshiping Him as God. And He says to Him, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus says, I'm willing, and he touches him. Now, this is very important. Jesus doesn't need to touch him, but Jesus does touch him. And this is very important because in the Old Testament, if you touched a leper, you became unclean. The leper did not become clean. You became unclean. The power was the power of sin. But with Jesus, he touches the leper. Jesus remains clean. The leper becomes clean. And this again shows us the power of God in Christ. Now the human race is also incapable of serving God. We're incapable of working alongside Him. That's what serving Him means. It's serving Him as a son serves a father. Remember, God could have made the kingdom full-blown, just like he made heaven, fully glorious, fully developed, fully mature. He could have done that with the earth. He could have done that with mankind. In other words, he could have done that with the kingdom of God, but he didn't. It's the difference between a father who says, son, I'm going to give you a car, and a father who says, son, let's build a car together. It's the difference between a king who says, son, I'm giving you a kingdom, and a father who says, son, let's build a kingdom together. The one father is giving his son something. The other father is giving his son himself plus the kingdom. And that's the way God deals with us. And we're incapable of serving God and working with him in his way. Uh, And that is what is pictured by Peter's mother-in-law. She has this fever. She is bedridden. Jesus heals her. She immediately begins to serve. She's serving Christ. She's serving Christ's people. And salvation means healing and restoring us to this kind of a joyful working relationship alongside God. The human race, in short, is incapable of even coming to God in Christ. And that is pictured by the paralytic. The paralytic can't even come to Jesus. The centurion has to come to Jesus and tell Jesus about the paralytic. The paralytic can't come. He's incapable of coming. And that's the way it is with us. God has to work before we can respond. We can't even do what we most need to do. We can't even see what we most need to see until God works in us. And the fourth thing we see is that sin and death affect each of us and all of us. They infect us and they affect us, each of us and all of us. And no one is is exempt. You notice here, you have 
You have a Gentile, the centurion. You have a member of God's covenant people, the leper. And then you have one of the ranks of Jesus' own disciples, Peter's mother-in-law. In other words, sin infects the Gentiles. It infects God's covenant people. And it even infects the ranks of the disciples. We are all in need of healing from sin and death. We all need to be made whole and healthy of heart, mind, and soul. We all need to be restored to fellowship, to worship, and to service. Fifth, we see that salvation, being made whole and healthy, being restored to God, being restored uh, to, to whom we were meant to be, comes through Jesus alone. Jesus alone. But we also see that Jesus is not only able... He is willing to make us whole. When the leper says to him, Lord, if you are willing, you can heal me. Jesus says, I am willing. Jesus has not only the power to save, he has the love to save. He is willing to touch us just like he touched the leper. And that is how he saves us, by identifying with us. And that's why Matthew quotes Isaiah the prophet when he says, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. We could be made whole only by God becoming one of us and only by him taking the effect and the results of our sin on himself. Only in that way could the power of Satan, sin, and death be broken by Jesus identifying with us so that we could identify with him. And sixth, we see that we come to Jesus by faith alone, like the centurion. And this faith is really the centerpiece of this passage. Our text shows the people being continually amazed by Jesus. They're amazed by his teaching. They're amazed by his actions. But it only shows Jesus being amazed once. And that is with the centurion, specifically the faith. The faith of the centurion amazes Jesus. In other words, this is what Jesus is looking for. This is what Jesus values. This is what he respects. Worship, fellowship, service, they're all downstream from faith in Jesus. They all flow from faith in Jesus. This Gentile, who no doubt did not have all the benefits of, of all the privileges of the covenant people over the many generations. Nevertheless, he knew the Lord when he saw him. He knew his authority. He knew who this was. And he says to him, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Just speak the word. He knows who he's dealing with. He knows who he's coming to. He knows he's dealing with an even greater commander, and he wants to be under him. So we see from the centurion's faith some of the characteristics of saving faith. Saving faith is a faith that unites us with Christ. It's a faith that responds to Christ. A person with saving faith is one who believes that he needs to be made whole and healthy. That's the first thing saving faith believes. That I need to be made whole. I need to be forgiven. I need to be made healthy. I do not have my act together. I am lost. I am helpless. My life is meaningless. 
I cannot do this. I don't have it all together. That's the first thing that saving faith believes. The second thing that saving faith believes is that I need to be restored to a relationship with God and with others. I need to be restored to a relationship with God. I was made for something more than what this life has to offer in the way that it's normally lived. I was made for more than this because life unto itself, life unto myself, ends up being empty and meaningless. What is the point? I need to be restored to a relationship with God. And I need to be restored to relationship with others because I have all these conflicts and problems in my relationship with other people. And unless I'm restored to a relationship with God, I can't even begin to be restored in these other relationships. The third thing that saving faith believes is that Jesus has the power to conquer Satan, sin, and death. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the Savior. He is the Lord. He has all power to conquer. He has everything I need, and He's the only one who has what I need. The fourth thing that saving faith believes is that Jesus is willing to save. It understands that God is not a stingy God. God loves to save. God loves to heal. God loves to resurrect the dead. God loves to forgive. And so like the leper, his leprosy, which excluded him from normal human contact, excluded him from formal worship, you think of the effect that it had on him. It did not keep him from coming to Jesus. He came to Jesus. In short, saving faith comes to Jesus. That's what it does. It comes to Jesus because it believes these things. It's convinced of these things. And so it comes to Jesus one way or another. The first thing that Adam and Eve did after they sinned was hide from God, which is really silly. Um, but that's what they tried to do. As soon as they sinned, the first thing they did was try to hide from God. The first thing that faith does is come to God in Jesus. Sin makes us want to hide from God. The first thing faith does is make us come to God in Jesus Christ. Coming to Jesus is the center of the Christian life. And this is so important for us to understand. If, if you don't know Christ and you're here, you need to understand it's very simple. It's just coming to Jesus. It's coming to a person. It's not getting your act together first. In fact, it's not doing that. It's understanding that you can't. And it's coming to Jesus. But if you've been a Christian, if you've been a Christian for years, if you've grown up in a Christian home, if you've had that great privilege, children, it's really vitally important that you understand that coming to Jesus is the center of the Christian life. It's not the beginning. It's not like a doorway you walk through and then you're done with that. Coming to Jesus is what the whole Christian life is about. The three people who are healed in our text weren't people who were healed and then transported to heaven. They continued to live in this fallen world. They continued to need Jesus in a whole host of ways every single day. They continued to have other issues. 
They continued to have other challenges. They continued to have other needs. In fact, they had the need every single day to believe in Jesus, to come to Jesus, to worship Jesus, to serve Jesus and his people. That need did not go away. That's, in fact, what life is. It's important that we see that, let's let's just imagine that there was never any sin. So we don't have any sin problem, okay? Let's, difficult to imagine, but let's try to imagine that. What would life be? Coming to Jesus, coming to God through His Son, through His Word. That's what life is. Even apart from sin, life is coming to God, not going away from Him. It's coming to God, worshiping God, being with Him, serving Him, fellowshipping with Him. It's coming to Him. So that's not just a sin issue. That's not some aberration that's come into life because of sin. It's not some, oh, we got to do this come to Jesus thing now because sin's come into the world. No, that's life from the very beginning. But then you bring sin in, And that just increases that all the more because He is the only one who can heal us. How are we healed? How are we made whole? By doing what life was about from the beginning, and that is coming to God in Christ. Because He has come, He has conquered Satan, sin, and death. So coming to Jesus day by day is what the Christian life is about. And it's so easy for us to forget that. Coming to Jesus again and again is what Jesus calls abiding in Him. It's a a continual day-by-day, moment-by-moment process of coming to Christ, so much so that Jesus calls calls it abiding. And that's what He says in John chapter 15. This is one of the last things He's going to say to His disciples before He gets arrested and He's crucified. He says, you need to, basically, you need to understand what life is about. You need to understand what being my disciples is about. You need to understand what this Christian life is about. And I'm going to tell you, it's like a vine and branches. He says, abide in me. In other words, continually come to me, stay with me, go with me, walk with me. Abide in me, He said, and I in you. It's like a vine and branches. He says, if you abide in me, then you're going to bear fruit, and you're going to bear a lot of it. So the Christian life is not like being a factory where you're manufacturing something. It's like being a branch that is plugged into a vine that is organically producing something that is beautiful fruit. And then Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. That's not just true for the start of the Christian life. It's true for all of life. Without me, you can do nothing. Then Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, it shall be done for you. So we see that part of having Jesus abiding us is by having his words abide in us. We take in his word because we understand that fundamentally his word is not information, it is Food. Jesus goes on and says, abide in my love. And he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my father's commandments and abided in his love. And I think this gets back. If, if you believe in a military commander, if you believe that a military commander has the power to deliver you from the oppressor, if you believe in a physician 
that a physician has the power to heal you, you're going to come to them and you're going to place yourself under them. You're going to want to be with them and you're going to be part, want to be part of what they're doing and you're going to want to do what they say. If you find yourself chafing, arguing, negotiating with what the great physician says, what the great commander says, it's because you don't believe. You either don't believe that you have a need to be made whole and healthy, or you don't believe that they have the power to do it. If you believe you're sick, and you believe this physician can heal you, and he's the only one who can do it, you're going to come to him and say, speak to me. What do you want me to do? What should I do? And you're going to want to do what they say. The same thing with a military commander who has the power to deliver you. You're going to want to do what they say. And that's what Jesus is getting at. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And then he says, these things I have spoken to you, that your joy may be made full, that my joy may be in you, that you can know the joy that I have, and that your joy may be made full. So many problems in the Christian life are simply because we forget this. We forget this center. We forget that this, coming to Jesus, abiding in Jesus, is what the Christian life is all about. We forget that we are a branch who can do nothing of ourselves. We can't even live of ourselves. It's not like we as a branch can go, okay, well, I think I'm going to live apart from Jesus for a while. What does a branch do when it's cut off from the vine? It shrivels up and it dies. Or else we forget that Jesus is the vine. He is alone can make us whole. He alone can give us life. He alone can make us bud and blossom and bear fruit. And He alone can give us joy. We forget this center. And that's what so many of the problems of the Christian life really come from. Because we forget this center, we stop coming to Jesus. We stop abiding in Him. And then we begin to go through the motions of the Christian life, right? We do good things. We come to church. Good thing. We may read our Bible. Good thing. We, we, do, other, we do other activities. Good thing. All good things. We're faithful to our spouse. Good thing. We do faithful things with our children and, and, and point them to the Bible and so forth. Good thing. We try to be faithful at work. Good thing. But you know, if you, you can take all these good things that we're supposed to do of Christians, and if you take out the heart, which is just coming to Jesus, these, 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 all these good things can become just a matter of going through the motions. It's just going through the motions. And then the joy goes away. Then the life becomes a burden. Then we begin to feel empty, and we feel like we're just kind of in a Christian rat race. Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 said to the Corinthians, he said, you know, I'm afraid that you're going to be deceived, and your minds are going to be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. He speaks of the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, Paul is not trying to dumb down the Christian faith. Paul is not being anti-intellectual because if there's ever an intellectual that, that we have in the Bible, it's Paul. Uh, this is one educated man. And you look at some of his theological passages and you look at the depth of his understanding that he's calling us to, but he's nevertheless saying, 
that there is a simplicity in Christ because the root and the heart of the Christian faith is just simply coming to Jesus. And Paul says, I'm afraid you're going to lose that. You're being deceived. So I leave you with two questions, two questions. Number one, do you see your need for Jesus? Do you see your need for Jesus? Now, I know you all admit your need for Jesus, just as I admit mine. But that's different from seeing it. Do you feel your need for Jesus? Do I feel the need for Jesus? In other words, are we presently aware of how dependent on Christ we are? Are we presently aware of different ways in which we fall short of the glory of God, different sin issues in our lives where we really need to be healed and sanctified by Jesus. Are we aware of that? If you think about yourself, if you're not really aware of your need, if you're not feeling your need for Christ on a daily basis, then ask Him. It doesn't change the fact that we are just as needy. Whether we feel it or not, we're just as needy. If you're not feeling your need for Christ on a daily basis, ask Him to show you. Ask Him to show you. If you're more aware of other people's sins, problems, flaws, than you are of your own, that's a, that's a danger sign. That's a danger sign that we're not being personally aware of our actual need for Christ as we should be. So the question, first question is, are you feeling your need for Christ on a daily basis because it's there. And if we're not feeling it, something's not quite right. And we need to go to him and ask him to heal us in that regard. The second question is simply, are you coming to Jesus? Are you coming to Jesus on a daily basis? Now, children, you may wonder, and I brought this question up a few weeks ago, but this is an important question. You may wonder, how can I come to someone I can't see? How can I abide in someone I can't see? How can I uh, have a relationship with somebody when I can't literally hear their voice? Well, you know, it's almost like Jesus heard our question, knew that we were going to be asking this question or feeling this question, and so he basically, after he was resurrected from the dead, Jesus basically said, you know, I'm glad you asked that question. I'm glad you asked, how can I have a relationship with somebody I can't see? Because he comes and he appears to these two disciples who are walking on the road. And he prevents their eyes from seeing him. In other words, they're in the exact same situation. Jesus is right there, but they can't see him. They can't recognize him. So they're in the exact same situation we're in. They're called to believe in somebody, come to somebody, have a relationship with somebody that they can't see. And then Jesus begins to speak to them and to preach to them from the Scriptures. He begins to open up His Word to them. And then He begins to break bread with them and to have fellowship with them. And then He opens their eyes so they can see Him and then He disappears. And what Jesus is really saying there is this is how you fellowship and abide in somebody you can't see. I'm going to meet with you. I'm going to meet with you through my word. I'm going to meet with you in prayer. I'm going to meet with you in fellowship with my people. And I'm going to meet with you around the Lord's table. 
He is just as much there with us as he was with these disciples on the road to Emmaus. We, like them, simply can't see him. And so this is the way we fellowship with him. This is the way he meets with us. So, once again, do you see, do you feel your need for Christ? And I'm not saying conjure up some kind of a uh, drama in your life. I'm saying do you actually see your need for Christ in everything that you're doing and in every relationship that you're in? And secondly, are you coming to him for this is what Christian life is all about. This is what life is all about. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.